You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. My guest today is Dr. Alan Brown, who is medical director of the Midwest Heart Disease Prevention Center at Midwest Heart Specialists in Naperville, Illinois. Alan Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We are here in Seattle at the National Lipid Association meetings. Alan, what's your personal history with IMT? Do you use it in your practice either to help stratify risk? Do you use it to follow patients? Or is it still really just for the research lab? No, that's a great question. I think that IMT still is a research tool, except in those centers where it's extremely well validated, the technicians are well trained. And IMT is really a predictor of risk, and we think it follows pretty well with clinical events, but that still remains to be seen before we can jump on that as a, as a surrogate for clinical endpoints. So we don't use it on a routine basis. I think what's clear is that it is a good predictor of risk, and there's a biological mechanism for reducing the progression of IMT that makes sense in terms of it being a reasonably good surrogate for clinical outcomes. Tell me a little bit about the steno studies. I was unfamiliar with those, and I know that you are more familiar with them. The steno trials were trials to look at multiple risk factor intervention in patients with diabetes. This was really an attempt to see if we could get better outcomes by attending to all the risk factors. So what they did was they took patients with type 2 diabetes and they tried to aggressively treat everything, their blood pressure, their hemoglobin A1C, their LDL cholesterol, their triglyceride level, and both systolic and diastolic blood pressure, and then compared that to conventional care. And actually, the initial Steno-2 study as well as the follow-up data showed really striking results with a more intensively treated group, better than you would expect from statin alone. So they had a remarkable reduction in cardiovascular mortality. They had a reduction in need for bypass surgery, angioplasty, and MIs that were well beyond what we would have expected. And the reductions that were published in that trial were absolute reductions. To get to your earlier point, they weren't relative risk reductions, so it was really quite stunning. And again, that returns us to the issue of we want to get all the lipids perfect and we want to get the blood pressure perfect and people losing weight and treat their insulin resistance. And no one of them will get rid of the, all the residual risk. Can you tell me a little bit about the CHAMP algorithm that UCLA uses? Yeah, while we're waiting for AIM High and we're waiting for long-term clinical outcome data, there's a few examples of people who did things that uh, might not seem scientific, but they had a systematic approach to care like we mentioned earlier. And I think one of the more striking ones was what Greg Fonero did at UCLA, which was just to put a protocol in place for every patient with atherosclerosis to be placed on an aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and a statin, and to be given exercise and dietary counseling. So he had a budget of zero for this project, and all he did was come up with standing orders, and he told all the cardiology fellows, here's what you're going to do. Anyone who comes in with 
carotid Doppler that shows atherosclerosis or coronary disease or peripheral vascular disease, you're going to put them on this cocktail of medications, and then there was some follow-up mandated. And what they did was remove drugs that had not been shown to reduce cardiovascular events and get the patients put on more of the appropriate risk-reducing medications. And within the first year after he implemented that protocol, the chance of dying or having a recurrent MI after being discharged from UCLA went down by more than half from 14.8% to about 6.4%. So there was a remarkable reduction in mortality, not to mention reduction in clinical events. And as you know, in our lipid trials that we get so excited about, it takes at least two years and most of them to see a statistically significant difference. And we measure their benefit over five years. So this multiple risk factor approach made a difference in just one year. And there are other examples of these kind of protocols having surprising outcomes, the steno-2 being one of them. And again, it pushes us to say that we have to look beyond LDL. Even though LDL may be the single most important thing that we have and it's easy to treat, we have to look beyond that. Alan, I'd like to change paths a little bit and ask your opinion on what I think you are passionate about because you did give a talk entitled Popular Particle Mechanics. And it seems over the last few years or even the last few months, people are really getting behind the particle number bandwagon and the particle size is kind of falling by the wayside. So that old adage that size isn't important, but the motion of the particles seems to be more important than ever. That's a difficult one to touch, but I will try. I think that the preponderance of evidence is that both methodologies, particle size and particle number, predict risk, and they do it slightly better than the basic lipid profile. There's going to be groups of patients that you may underestimate their risk based on their standard lipid profile, though I think those groups aren't huge. I think when your LDL gets below 100... There's a pretty big gap in terms of reproducibility for what their real LDL is. Yes, but all of our clinical trials, except for the Lipid Research Clinic's primary prevention trial done in 1984, use calculated LDL. Mm -hmm. So yes, you can argue that you're not really getting a real LDL, but the data that we used to set guidelines was based on calculated LDL. So we have to come up with a whole new set of rules to decide what to do with measured LDL. But what you say is true, and then the question is, what do you do with it? And that's been the ongoing dilemma. So with that said, I think particle number seems to be even a better predictor than particle size based on some of the clinical data that we see in terms of predicting outcomes. What we don't have yet, however, is a prospective randomized trial of treating those parameters, trying to increase buoyancy of particles or trying to reduce particle numbers, and then seeing if we focus on those test results, whether we'll get better outcomes than we would by doing what the NSEP guidelines say, which is treat LDL to goal and then follow up with non-HDL. And none of the clinical trials that we've had have really focused on non-HDL, which is, as you know, a surrogate for APOB. But that's what the current guidelines recommend. And what's missing is using these so-called novel risk factors or advanced lipid testing in a prospective trial and using them to guide our therapy. We have the same problem with CRP. We have evidence that high HSCRP shows an increased risk. But then 
what's the treatment? The treatment is to lower LDL further, but we haven't used CRP as a target yet to determine whether that should be. And the most classic scenario was the homocysteine issue, where we knew that high homocysteine predicted risk, but we did two large trials reducing homocysteine. It didn't reduce cardiovascular risk. So not everything that predicts risk reduces it when you treat it. Right. A horizontal earlobe crease was always thought to predict sure. risk, but if you cut off the earlobe, you don't <laughs> reduce it. And that's why we need prospective clinical trials to know what to do with some of these tests. If a general practitioner is listening to the show and is thinking about getting his feet wet with advanced lipid testing, he can choose a Berkeley, he can choose a VAP, he can choose an NMR, and I even think there's a new kid on the block at these meetings. I haven't dropped by their booth yet. What do you tell him? Well, what I would say to the general practitioner and what I do in my own practice is I don't think everybody needs an advanced lipid test. Whichever one you choose is up to you. You know, you can go around and talk to the different companies and look at the data. I think there's a fair amount of validated predictive data for both the Berkeley Heart Labs and the Liposcience NMR testing. It's the VAP and some of the others, they do similar types of testing with different methodology and one can talk to them about which they think is best. But in whom do you need those tests? I think when you have a, a clinical question, I think if you have a middle-aged man who smokes, has hypertension, has an LDL of 160, I don't need that test. I'm going to treat that patient. I'm going to get their LDL down to appropriate NSEP goals, and I'm going to be pretty comfortable. But if you have a borderline patient, let's say a middle-aged female whose LDL is right on the border and who doesn't want to be on therapy, but yet she's got multiple family members that had coronary disease, and you say, well, her lipid profile doesn't look that bad, but I'm worried about her. That's when doing an advanced lipid test really makes sense, because then you can further get information about her risk. And if she has high particle numbers, or she has a lot of small dense LDL particles, or her HSCRP is high, in your mind you'd say, she's actually on the higher end of risk and I'm going to treat her more intensively, and I'm going to try and convince her to take therapy. And if those numbers are all normal, you may go along with her and say, look, you're borderline, but I can't find any reason to push you to take therapy. So I think all of these tests, until we have outcome measures of using them to treat and comparing them to our standard approaches, uh, should be used in those patients where you need the information to make a judgment on how intensively to treat the patient. Alan, our last question, I'd like to circle back to HDL, and I want you to play a little game with me and pretend your wife comes home with a check for $500,000 and says, Alan, this money must be spent on an emerging therapy that's going to raise HDL, and you can only put the money on one particular therapy. Go do it. What are you going to do? That's a tough question because there are seven or eight targets all under development, and I don't know how well they're all going. I think the CETP inhibition has had a little stone thrown at it, but yeah. nobody's quite sure whether that was the molecule or the class of drugs. We do know that raising HDL with uh, niacin is quite effective, and we have data with gemfibrozole, too, that raising HDL reduces cardiovascular events further. But that's off patent, so you're not going to invest your 500000 there. And I think that the APOA1 mimetics and the attempts to raise the APOA1 are probably going to be the most likely candidates. I want so, you to commit. 
I want you to say this is what Alan Brown believes is going to win the race in the next 10 years, if you can. I don't have an answer for you. I think there's so many exciting intermediary steps in HDL metabolism that we've recently come to understand that there are really multiple targets that may turn out to be the right one. And currently, I can say that HDL is a lot like psychiatry. About half of what we know is correct, and nobody knows which half it is. And many people were betting on uh, CETP inhibition as being the savior to reduce all residual risk. And how you fool Mother Nature obviously makes a difference. So I think as we learn more about HDL, we will have the answer, but right now I tell her to put, put that money in the, in the stock market while it's really low and, and keep it there <laughs> Real for estate. 10 years. Alan Brown, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Lipid Illuminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. 